second Bible reading now, we're continuing on from where we got up to before, so we'll continue on in chapter 16 from verse 19, and we'll go through till a bit of the way through chapter 17. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you, need to, what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went, to the, went on, out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you at the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Thank you, Ollie. Good morning, friends. My name's John. It's a wonderful privilege to consider this passage with you this morning. We've got a few more weeks in the book of Exodus, so we'll uh, finish Exodus in two more weeks' time, and then we'll, in fact, start an evangelistic series. So uh, hopefully that will be exciting for all of us. But let's pray, and we'll consider this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we do consider this passage, uh, 
that the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts will be pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Australians are known for many things, many things. But perhaps one of the things we'd rather not be known for is that we are a nation of whingers. We'd rather not be known as whingers, but we are a nation of whingers. I remember reading these articles. They're old, a bit dated, but from the ABC, Snobs and Whingers, the new Australia. What do you think, you Australians? Or what about this one? Aussies are now the biggest whingers in the world. Aussies, you, me. Or this one, whinging Aussies, it's time to toughen up. Now I wonder after looking at those headings, you might be thinking, I'm not an Aussie, I'm a tourist now. That's not me. But I wonder whether we're thinking, you know, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But I would ask you just to listen to ourselves, how we think, how we speak. Driving down Canterbury Road and there's a pothole, what do we do? Someone has to fix this. Must be the government's fault. Someone should fix it. And then we stop at, at this traffic line and we're thinking, what's taking so long? Someone should, you know, call up Vic Roads, fix up their algorithm. I'll do a better job than them. But we're thinking, no, keep it longer so that people can see our church and just stay there for a bit longer. Or you go to fill up petrol, it's over $2. What's going on? It's the government's fault. Someone's at fault. Someone's to blame. You buy coffee. It's, it's too hot, too cold, too milky, too weak. You come to church. It's too cold, too hot, too slow, too fast, too this and that. You have dinner. It's too salty, too bland, too vegetarian for me. This is not on. Now, I wonder whether any of you think like that. You're very silent. I wonder whether inside you're thinking, that's me. But here's the irony. Even if we're not like that, I wonder whether you're like me, and maybe we may not whinge much, but we whinge about those who whinge. There's an irony there. Those guys, stop whinging, stop whinging. Those guys, come on, just be content. And so I wonder whether any of these experiences resonate with you at all. We may not think much about it. But today we're going to think more about it. Because you see, whinging, complaining, grumbling, it always, always reveals something from within. It, in fact, exposes our heart. And that's exactly what we see in this situation we find the Israelites in. They're six weeks after crossing the Red Sea, and so they should be over the moon. We're saved. We're no longer slaves. We're, we've got freedom. But yet here we find a whole community of whingers, complainers, whiners. I mean, it's like they've got amnesia. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Now, after hearing those few words, we're meant to be scoffing. What do you mean? Let me read again and, and maybe you can scoff inside. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Really? But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. I mean, do you hear what they are saying? 
They've just been freed from slavery, from Egypt, from all the torture. But now they're saying, I'd rather be pummeled by hailstones. I'd rather wake up holding my dead firstborn son. I'd rather die as a slave in Egypt. I mean, they, they were delusional at this point. They're thinking, it's the good old days. They forgot how bad it really was. I mean, they're describing their past a bit like sitting around a campfire, singing kumbaya, eating pots of meat. I mean, they're, they're delusional. Have they forgotten the whipping, the beatings, the bruising, the torture, the toil, the slavery? Have they forgot it all? But of course, what was happening as they were complaining and whinging? You see, the problem wasn't their memory. It wasn't even their current circumstances. The problem was their heart. Their heart was the problem. Their grumbling exposed what was in their heart. And it was ugly. And it wasn't as though they were just there six weeks after crossing the Red Sea. They were there making an objective assessment. Let us consider our situation. We're in the desert. There's no food. What do we do? It wasn't like that at all. And Moses saw right through them. Do you see what Moses said about them? He said it three times. In verse, in verse 7, he said, He has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And then the second time, He has heard your grumbling against him. And then the third time, You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. You see, their grumbling was against God. It wasn't against their leaders when they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. It wasn't really about them. Now, the word grumbling has that sense of murmuring. or it, In fact, it's, it's got that sense of throwing a tantrum. You know, just like the toddler at, a, at the supermarket, throwing a tantrum, going crazy, I want this, I want that. And, and I'm not speaking from experience, but they were grumbling, throwing a tantrum against God. And their grumbling arises from a heart what was it doing? Well, it rises from a heart that was scrutinizing God's ways, calling into question God's goodness, and judging God's purposes. It's as though they've placed God in the dock, and they are judged now, and they're making a judgment on what God is doing. You see, at this point, I think it's important for us to pause for a little bit and, and do a little self-reflection. Because I suspect our personalities will lean one way or the other. And so let me ask you, are you the grumbling type? You know, we know the grumbling type. And if we're not the grumbling type, then we grumble about those who grumble. I mean, you've got that gift, that wonderful gift of seeing the fault in everything. As minute as it is. You've got that gift of seeing the fault in every person, in every leader. You pick it out. I mean, they should have done it this way. They should have done it that way. They should have done it better. I could have done it better. But of course here, we should be aware that whinging, a whinging and complaining spirit, a whining and grumbling attitude reflects more on not so much our circumstances, but reflects more on our inward condition, the inward condition of our hearts. And the more I grumble, the harder my heart gets. And just be aware, just like the Israelites, our grumbling may just be against God himself. 
mean, I'll praise God when life is good, when things are fine, when work is great, when family's harmonious, when the sun is shining. But when it's not, it's your fault, God. And that's what the Israelites were doing. But how did God respond? Now, I'm not sure about you, but we should find this so surprising, so fascinating. Because what God says here should really just warm our hearts. Because imagine if you were God, if I were God, the fury. I mean, I just saved you. The ten plagues, the Red Sea crossing. Now you're whinging and whining. Zap, you're gone. You're whining, zap, you're gone too. Zap, you're gone too. That's what I would do. But you'd be glad I'm not God and God's not me. You see, they're grumbling. What was it met with? Not fury. Not a consuming fire. But it was met by God's outrageous patience. Gentleness, tenderness. And it wasn't even the first time. They've grumbled before. They've grumbled when they were made to make more bricks. They grumbled, but God was so patient. They grumbled when they were by the sea, when the army was approaching them, but God was patient. They grumbled because of no water, but God was so patient. It wasn't the first time. But why? Why was God like that towards them? Well, it certainly wasn't because they deserved it, not at all. But it was simply because of God's own choice. Remember what God said early in Exodus. He said, I will love Israel, for they are my firstborn son. God has set his love on this people, and they are like his son. And so what did God say? Well, look at verses 4 to 5. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And then look at verse 9. Jump down a few verses. We read, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. Again, we should be so surprised, so amazed by that. It's not get lost, go away. But God says, God invites, come near and come close. The patience and gentleness of God is just unbelievable. Now, why did God provide this way for them in their wilderness travels? Why? Because, you see, these people had to learn something. They had to learn the hard way, and really it's the only way. They had to learn just like that old hymn. They had to learn to trust God and obey God every day trust and obey because you see their problem they thought it was just physical we've got no food no water but their problem wasn't physical at all it was spiritual because it was if it was just merely a physical problem that would have been so easy for God to sort out I mean what could God have done instead if it was just merely a physical problem Well, if God created the entire universe, couldn't God have just turned that arid desert into a bountiful oasis with springs of water and orchards and apples and oranges and herds of cattle for steak? Of course God could. That would solve their physical problem. Easy piece of cake for God. But God didn't. Why? Because imagine if God did that, turned it all into an oasis, how quickly it would have been for them to forget God. 
because he's so good. Life is so good now. We've got everything we need. We don't need God anymore. But instead, what did God do? God gave them manna. And every day, and just enough. Just enough for each day. But then, you, you, you think about that. Couldn't God have organized it some other way? Made it a bit easier? You know, collect manna, but maybe you can just go out once a week. Not six times a week, but just once a week. A bit like how in our household we go grocery shopping once a week, or I do anyway, on my day off. Some have wondered, what do you do on your day off? I follow Yvonne around and go grocery shopping. <laughs> Let me follow you, follow you around, wife. Let me carry your bags, wife. Let me go where you go down the aisle of Coles and Woolies. You can see how much I look forward to my day off. <laughs> but couldn't God have done that? Just once a week, go collect manna. But imagine if God did that. They'll only learn to trust God one day a week. The other days, I just trust what I have already collected. I'll just trust what's in the storehouse, what I've stored up. But what did God do instead? What did God instruct? Well, you go out how many times a week? Six times a week to collect manna. How much? Just enough. And so each day as you go out, just collect enough just for that day. No more, no less. And so the guy who goes out in the morning, he comes with a big basket and another one with a small basket. The man with the big hand, he can collect a lot. The other one with a smaller hand. By the end, they weigh it out and they just have just enough. Those who collected more will not have too much. Those who have collected little will not have too little, just enough. And then God says, you are not to keep any of it overnight. Because some will be thinking, and God knew that. Some will be thinking, well, I'm not sure if God will provide tomorrow. I can see it today. God has provided. Maybe tomorrow, I'm not sure. Maybe let's keep a stash aside, just in case. Just in case God has forgotten us. Just in case God doesn't provide. And then what happened to them? Well, their stash, it gets filled with maggots and it's stunk. And so what was God teaching his people? You see, it wasn't merely a physical problem. It was a spiritual problem. What they had to learn every single day was to trust and obey God every day. In fact, God makes it clear later in Deuteronomy, on the verge of the promised land, we read this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. It's a spiritual matter, whether or not you would keep his commandments. You see, their problem, and really our problem, is never merely physical. It's always about the heart. And so God is saying to them, will you trust me? Will you trust me by obeying me? Will you trust that your survival depends just on me. That I will provide. I will care. Today I provide. Tomorrow I will still provide. And the day after, I will still provide. You will survive. Just trust me. I will never forsake you. And they were to be reminded of that every single day. Why? So that every day they learn to trust and obey. And that's why I wonder whether... Something is lost today in how we live our lives. 
Because I think it's different when you go out every day and you see manna because you're, you're made to remember, well, that's a miracle. It doesn't just appear. That's a miracle. So I wonder whether today something is lost, where we don't need to go out every day to collect manna, but we go to the supermarkets once a week. Because it's so easy to forget, isn't it? It's so easy to forget that every single meal, everything we eat, everything we have is God's kind provision. It comes from the good hand of God. And it's why it's a good thing and an important thing for us who are Christians to say grace before every meal. Because it's acknowledging, though I bought it from Woolies or Costco, it comes ultimately from God. And so thank the Lord. In fact, isn't that what Jesus taught himself in the Lord's Prayer? What's that line? Give us today our daily bread. Today, just for today. No more, no less, just today. So everything I eat, breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, cake, the warmth we have, the shelter we enjoy, the breath, life, family, friends, church, it is all from God's generous provision. Give us today our daily bread. And it's the same reason why God gave them the Sabbath as well. It was to teach them the same lesson. And so verse 26, have a look. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Why? Why are they not to go out on the seventh day on the Sabbath? Well, it was to teach them that same lesson to trust and obey. You see, you don't need to work today. It's the Sabbath. Just as I stop supplying today, and so that's, in a sense, a hint of God, in a sense, resting. I stop supplying today. You are to stop collecting today. And you will not die if you stop working. I will take care of things. You need to rest, just as I rested after creation. In fact, you set this side, did stay aside for the Lord. And so some did and some didn't. And those who didn't, what did they do? They went out, they thought, I'm going to work. I can't depend on God. I don't know if he'll provide tomorrow. I better go out today as well on the Sabbath. And what did they find? Nothing. You see, they should have trusted. And I think at this point, it's worth again, as a little uh, side point, worth reflecting briefly on the Sabbath. I mean, I understand Christians, we have different opinions and views on the Sabbath. But before we too quickly dismiss it, note when this was spoken of, when God speaks about keeping the Sabbath here. It was, in fact, before the Sabbath laws were given. That comes later in chapter 20. We're only at chapter 16. Why? Because what God is speaking about here is not reflecting on the law that will come, but it's reflecting on creation that has taken place already. It's the creation pattern, the one in seven, one in seven, take a break, one in seven committed to the Lord. It's a creation pattern, not just for Israel. In fact, it's for all humanity. And I think that's something we need to be mindful of today because society has changed so, so much over the last 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. It has changed so much. Our Sundays has been filled. Everything's just creeped into the Sundays. I still remember growing up, shopping centres weren't open on Sundays. There were only milk bars. In fact, probably before my time, petrol stations, only some were open, not all. I'm not that old yet, but some of you will remember that. 
and there was a time where you would not have football matches on Sundays. Why? Because Sunday was different. It was to be set apart, not just for Christians, but for all humanity. And families and society has suffered because Sunday just blends into every other day. Now, this is not to say that we are to keep the Sabbath in some legalistic way so that we might be saved. Not at all. But if I stop working one day a week, what do you think I'm expressing? If I stop collecting manna one day a week, if I stop depending on myself, if I stop worrying about tomorrow whether God will provide, what am I expressing? I'm expressing trust in God. If I stop working, God does not. If I stop working, God still provides so that I can focus on him today, worship him, rest. I mean, I don't need to work to secure my future, but I find my security in God who has given me that day. I mean, just consider that, what it looks like for you in your weekly routine. Do you have a pattern? And there are seasons. There are seasons in life. New mothers, you're working 24-7. But there are seasons, but that pattern, one in seven. And if you do take that, see how it will affect you physically, mentally, relationally. You'll have more time for relationships. And of course, spiritually. You see, the problem with Israel, for some of them, was that it was meant to be a gift to be received. But they abused it. And so the lesson is the same. What's the lesson? Trust and obey. Now, do you notice that this was their experience throughout their entire desert journey. Do you notice that? You see, the manna was given to them for 40 years. 40 years eating manna. Why? Because they had to learn that lesson, and it takes a long time to learn that lesson. That's 14,600 days. Look at verse 35. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. Why? Why does God keep on sending them manna for 40 years? Well, it's just like the very next chapter. What will happen? They will fail again. They will ask for it. They will grumble again. They will fail. And I think this is worth reflecting on. And I really appreciate what Keller said about this. It was very insightful. Because if you think about it, who is it that says, you've grumbled, you have whinged, you shouldn't have, you should have just trusted, but that's okay. Tomorrow, we'll try again. Today, you've taken more than you need. You should have kept the stash aside. It's all rotten now. You should have known better, I told you. But it's okay. Tomorrow, it'll be a new day, we'll try again. You shouldn't have gone out on the Sabbath. You should have just trusted me. I told you there won't be anything on the Sabbath. But you failed again. But that's okay. Tomorrow we try again. I mean, who speaks such a way to someone who keeps on failing and failing and failing? Who speaks with such gentleness and patience? It's like our father will speak to his child. You see, when you fail... I'm not going to come down on you like a sledgehammer, smack down. But instead, it's okay, my child. You've stuffed up today. But tomorrow, 
there's another opportunity for you to trust and obey. The sun will set. The sun will rise. It will be a new day tomorrow. We try again tomorrow to trust and obey. And you'll see, just like you should today, that tomorrow I will still provide. I will still care. I will still never abandon you. Manna will still be there. There will still be enough. You can still trust me. And that was their experience for 40 years, to teach them trust and obey. And so now what do you reckon about this passage, this story? Does it throw some light on whinging and complaining? You know, even as we reflect on our own hearts? And can you see how relevant this passage is? Because I suspect for some of us, and I do know for some of us, our life now might feel like just that, a wilderness experience. We're in the arid desert place, and as I consider my life situation, my circumstances, things are just not right, and I feel unsettled, anxious inside. And there are so, so many things I can whinge about, complain about, grumble about, be bitter about. Each time I, I, I pick up the newspapers, I'm, I'm complaining, I'm whinging. And I'm looking forward to the day when I pick up the newspapers, read it and say, look at that, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, it's good news. Not at all. And so for some of us, it might be that season of the wilderness experience. And it's just not right. It's not fair. It shouldn't, have, it shouldn't have been that way. It should be different. If only I could turn back time. If only I could go back in time, change my ways, fix up my regrets, stop the things that will bring me shame, do things differently. But what does this passage teach us if you're in that wilderness experience? What do I need? Well, I could, one, and I hear this often enough, I could respond by descending into self-pity, even self-loathing. No one understands me. No one understands what I've been through. No one has felt the suffering I've experienced. And though that may be true, but what is at the heart of self-pity? It's actually selfishness or self-centeredness. Because what I'm saying is what matters now is me and I've lost all perspective. And wasn't that the problem with the Israelites? As though they're at the center of the world and God revolves around them. They are to call the shots and God is to do their bidding. And it's all God's fault when it's not right. And I grumble and I whinge and I complain and I descend into self-pity. I mean, that's one thing I could do when I'm in the wilderness. And so perhaps reflect, if that is you, whether you are responding that way. Instead, what should I do? Well, this is what I encourage. And often in my pastoral catch-ups, this is often what I do encourage when I sense a little bit of self-pity. I say, why do you now have a go at counting your blessings? Just the other week, I met up with a young man. Count your blessings. Consider the goodness of God in your life now. You see, for the Israelites, every day they knew it was a miracle. They saw manna. It's a miracle. They're in the desert. Where does it come from? It's a miracle. And it's, in fact, no different today if we have the eyes to see that God is still there. He loves, he cares, he provides. 
And I know for some, coming to church sometimes is quite difficult because you're trying to sing songs of praise, but my heart is just not there. Life is so difficult. How can I sing of these things when it feels like my life goes from crisis to crisis? But what do I say? Count your blessings. All you have and all you are is because of God's kindness to you. Just like manna in the desert. You can still breathe, can't you? You can still walk. You can still smell the flowers. You can feel the warmth of the morning sun on your face. You can eat. You can enjoy that. You have clothes. You've got shelter. You've got family, friends, a church. Count your blessings one by one. God is still good. Go out, see the manna, see the miracle. And then what happens? Our grumbling shrinks. Our perspective changes where we're not in the center, but God is. Count your blessings. But more than counting your blessings, it's really to learn that what we really need, what we really need at our very core, is not stuff from God, manner, food, clothes. What we need from God is not stuff, but what we need from Him is Him. We need Him. You see, when God was providing manna daily, he was teaching them, you may think you want food and that's all you need, but no, what you really need is me. You need to walk with me. You need a relationship with me. You need me in your life. You may be in the wilderness and you've got nothing at all, but if you have me, you have all you need. You've got the sweetness of life. Even if around you it is all a desert, you have the sweetness of God to have him, to have the one who will always care, always provide, never abandon, the one who will never withhold anything good from those who love him. You see, I have God. That's the lesson of this. I have God. Not merely stuff from God, but I have God. And even though my circumstances do not seem like that, it's still the sweetest place to be because I have God. Because what is it that God has done? You see, the story of the manna does not just stop there. Because what was this story pointing to? About 1,500 years after this wilderness journey, this desert experience, you have one who calls himself the bread of life, who comes from heaven to earth. He fed the 5,000, and then what did he declare? He said, I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. Of course they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, that is to trust in Jesus, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So do you see what Jesus has done? He's showing the need of every human being. He moves from the physical to the spiritual, from the daily food to eternal life, from just existing to salvation. You want to live, not just now but forever. You long for satisfaction, fulfillment, delight, your heart's Joy fulfilled. Well, you need me, Jesus says. 
You need to trust in me. Not all the men in the world, that can't help. What you need is me. Not the wealth that will corrode. Not the approval of your peers that's fickle. Not your health that will decline. Not your careers that will go. Death will rob it all. But Jesus says, if you have me, you have the one who has given up his life for you. And you have eternal life. And so that is so today, as a church, I want us to reflect as we start this week. Will we continue to grumble, whinge, complain? Well, hopefully not. Hopefully our heart are filled with gratitude and thankfulness to God for every single day in every little thing. We count our blessings, but ultimately our gratitude is to Jesus, the bread of life. And if I have him, who cares if I'm in the wilderness? I have the sweetness of life. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do teach us each and every day to trust and obey you. And you make it so clear that we can trust and obey you because Jesus is that bread from heaven, the bread of life. And if we have him, we have it all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.